Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined by Professor Right Reverend Ian Clary with a new lapel mic. Hey, in a Toronto mug? Toronto, Toronto Baptist, Baptist Seminary. seminary. <laughs> I think uh, my, we're we're my... supposed to be advertising your seminary, but okay. <laughs> Toronto Baptist Seminary as well. Yeah, my and, alma mater. Uh, here we go. Um, and we're going to look at uh, chapter six and seven of Calvin's book for the, uh, of the Institutes of Christian Religion. And in these chapters, Kelvin's basically saying, okay, we're accused of being schismatics, but we're not because we follow scripture. And in fact, when you look at the Roman church today, it's a, uh, there's a lot of corruption that has happened since the ancient church and implicitly the biblical model. He doesn't quite say it that way. He says the ancient church, but I think implicitly the biblical model, because he goes to the Bible, um, at least in sections two and three of chapter six to make his point. Um, as we get going, it's interesting that he recognizes that the Reformed churches could be accused of schism. So maybe I can open up to you just like what, like define schism and what's actually going on? Like, why is Kelvin worried about this? Yeah, I mean, it's a legitimate worry because, you know, throughout church history, especially in the early church, you know, heresy and schism were like the two just absolutely uh, worst things that could happen within a church, whether at large or whether in an individual body. And so we don't think of it that way today. We think heresy, oh, so bad. But then schism, we're like, well, that has to happen. And and the, the church has always been historically, like radically in favor of church unity. And uh, and that schism was as bad. As, if you're a schismatic, you're as bad as an Aryan. And so that's no wonder then that he, he is striking that as a huge concern. And he's making that, I think, a very good point in that he's going to argue that we're not, I think you just said this, we're not the schismatics, right? We, we're actually trying to maintain true Catholicity here. And, you know, the, the church, the late medieval papacy, especially has actually become the true schismatics in their demands for this like radical unity under the Roman pontiff. And uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you remember this from a number of years ago, but um Kevin Van Hooser, uh, there was a website that was set up about re Reformed Catholicity, and there was like a statement that everybody was signing off on. I think on I do. Re maybe, maybe at least. Yeah, I think it was around the time of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in mm -hmm. 2017. And he, he made that really great point, too. He's like, we're actually like demonstrating a real Catholicity here in our diversity, where you guys have like this enforced unity that's institutional. And yet the Roman Catholic Church itself is a disaster on the inside. So, yeah, you've got this vein or this veneer, sorry, of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a unity, but it's not real. Whereas ours, we're actually really and truly united around the gospel. And yeah, uh, he's just picking up on the same kind of point that Calvin's basically making interesting. here. Based on what you were just saying, I was, I've been reading um, Roger Scruton on politics recently. Oh, yeah. You can't go wrong with Scruton. And he makes this point that uh, like. Um, religious law, it doesn't change, but secular law does. And he's talking yeah. about it in, in a different way than we would. What he's saying is you actually need to be able to change. And that's why it's good to have laws that make sense of the current time. But he talks about Sharia law and different things and, and how, because it kind of got static, I guess, in the eighth century, they, there was this idea that you don't change anymore, that it's actually really hard to interpret today. Yeah. And there's a sense in which um, the Roman church and its canons and its, its order has some benefit, but then it's so static, as you said, that there's no maybe freedom for the spirit. And so yeah. you have these works across the world that are not really part of that institution, but yet are obviously and genuinely Christian. Yeah. And for you and me, I mean, I think um, the function of denominations is unity. Yeah, absolutely. I function always tell my students, I tell my students all the time, denominations are not bad because they think, oh, this is the big problem. The church is so divided. 
why can't we get our act together? I'm like, no, no, denominations are good. It, it allows yeah. for a real diversity within well, the fundamental unit. Just, just to find the word denomination, it's a, it means a part, and a part is a part of a whole. whole. Yeah. So denominations function is unity. And so when you have a sort of mono, uh, I guess uniformity is a way to put it, a uniform mm -hmm. exact way of doing everything, then whenever there's any sort of disagreement, there's no like way to work past it. But scripture has a different view. I mean, I, I, Calvin actually taught me this fascinatingly enough. I preached on, on Sunday, but uh, Philippians 3, 15 and 16, Paul says, look, um, after talking about pursuing Christ, if you guys disagree on anything, um, you know what? God will reveal it to you. But, yeah. but you, in the meantime, pursue what you've already attained. And his point is that you need to actually trust God yeah. in your disagreements. And uh, you have lots of passages that are somewhat similar. In Romans 14, for example, Paul says, I have a view. I side with the strong. Meat and drink don't matter. But it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in right. terms of unity, in terms of welcoming one another. Yeah. I mean, it matters, but in terms of welcoming one another, it doesn't matter. So he has a view which might be akin to denominational differences on like, say, Eucharist or baptism. It's a, it's a real view. It's legitimate. It's I'll eat what I want. Uh, but then he won't do that sometimes for the sake of others. Yeah. Uh, because he actually views, um, what's the right word? It's like an appropriate compromise. It's not compromise in the negative sense. It's like the, the ability not to get your way yeah. for the sake of others because the gospel is more important than your than your opinion and actually the last thing i'll say sorry i'm talking about but i'll say one last no, thing no. And i'll let you jump in I, i've always read uh first corinthians i can't remember the passage offhand where paul says there must be i think it's chapter 11 there must be divisions among you so they you know who might be genuine i've yeah. always read that as negative oh we need to cause schism but actually <laughs> you read paul and you read the corinthian letters and he's saying it's not good that you're of paul not good that you're of paulus you actually need to be united and that passage, I think, is entirely positive. What he's saying is, when the differences are known, eventually the truth will be revealed. It's not the case that those differences are meant to divide. It's not like this is giving you, um, this is giving you like authorization to, to split churches. He's just saying, yeah. when these happen, I think you follow the Philippians model, you wait for the Lord to reveal them. And when that happens, the truth will be known, or what will be good will be known, but you don't split. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah, not yeah. what's going on there. Yeah, so it's a it's a fundamental lack of faith and trust in what God's actually doing, and really what you're trying to do it's, is force not, His hand. Right, it's not confessing the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we yeah, confess amazing. the Holy Spirit. Do you? Do you genuinely? Because Ephesians four says there's a sevenfold unity of the Spirit, one baptism, yeah. one Lord, and um, the Calvin's going to get into. Oh yeah, I don't know about yeah, probably. <laughs> we yeah, yeah, he, yet, but... yeah. Well, you know, we, yeah, he he talks about that at the end of the of chapter six, I think. Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah, we're, yeah. I guess I didn't remember. Oh, I see. You're, hey, you're right on page one, eleven, eleven. Yeah, eleven, eleven. Yeah. Yeah, that's just so. It, it is just utterly fascinating to me that the schism idea and unity. You have an article on the Gospel Coalition Canada's website. You probably just type in your name and then TGC Canada. Um, where you actually, I can't remember. You talk about schism and heresy. Can you remind me yeah. of the? Yeah, it was uh, the what was it called? The ill advised. It was a quote from Calvin. Ill advised for, zeal, zeal for... for. I can't remember the last one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a quote. But yeah, because there are people that are just so quick, right? He, it's amazing when we talk about it. It'll be, I think, a lot of fun when we get into this, into that section. Or did we? We haven't done that section yet, have we? I don't, I don't think remember. so. No. Oh no, it's anyway. at the beginning of chapter. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, before. we did talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Where an he ill talks an ill-advised zeal for righteousness. Righteousness, that's what it is. And that there are these Calvin people. that awfully divisive person in your church. Yeah, there are these these there are these people that have such a desire for purity within the church, which of course is their standard of what purity is. 
uh, that that they're just making a wreck of things because nobody adds up. It's like, oh, shocking. You know, people this side of the fall are imperfect. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, we forget that Catholicity is a major concern concern for the Reformed tradition. And somebody like Calvin in this chapter, I think, really articulates it. Um, the word you were looking for, too, a minute ago uh, is actually ironic. Um, when we look at, so you and I are both have affiliation with the Davenant Institute and, uh, they're one of the major kind of, uh, hallmarks of their, uh, approach to retrieving the reformed tradition is to retrieve reformed irenicism, mm. which is this idea that like, we actually have really serious disagreements and we can clearly articulate our disagreements, uh, without actually rupturing the unity of the church. And, yeah. uh, and I think that, that, that to me is, is the way to go. Uh, when it comes to how do we, how do we actually have a real civil discourse where we can really air our genuine differences and yet maintain a, a fundamental unity um, within the midst of it? And uh, we don't. I, I think, especially with like the the political situation that's going on both in Canada and the states right now, we're just losing it. Well, when it comes to difference, there's 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 two errors that are actually the same thing. So one is you de- you demand uniformity, the, the exact look of things. So you can either say you're different, therefore bad. I split. Yeah. Or you can say you're different, therefore you must. So the person feels like they must um, adapt into and kind of compromise their view. Yeah. But in both cases, there's a demand for uniformity that goes beyond what's necessary according to scripture. And in fact, I yeah. think what's necessary according to scripture is in our real differences, you wait and you wait for the Lord. Yeah. And you trust in him. And then you act like a Christian, which is love, peace, joy, etc. Yeah. Um, Calvin's argument for we're not schismatic is sort of twofold. One, it's Bible. And then two, it is, in, in terms of content, much more of an, an historical argument. Yeah. So his, in, in some, his Bible arguments, the high priest in the Old Testament is actually summed up in Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, not the Pope. Yeah. And then he talks a little bit about um, uh, Peter and, and the authority of the church. But, but it's interesting. Then he goes on for pages and pages of historical detailed um i don't know if arguments the right word but it goes to the church councils it looks at some of the nitty-gritty of who sat on those councils he cites cyprian he cites jerome he uh again has a love for bernard of clairvaux he seems to view himself like bernard of clairvaux because he's like even in clairvaux's time that a lot of error just like today but you know clairvaux is awesome which i just (laughs) find interesting yeah um, I guess one thing that's in, like, it's kind of confirming what you said, but it's namely that, that the reformers, and I guess Calvin in particular, view themselves as true Catholics, because he's, as he's outlining the ancient church, and uh, in the, the chapters we had last week, he's okay with these, uh, what everyone called traditions, as long as they accord with scripture. What he's not okay with is traditions that corrupt and then destroy the form of the ancient church that accords with scripture. Yeah. And that's what his kind of main complaint is. Um, on page 1117, so 1117, I, I think it's pretty interesting that he cites Cyprian yeah. in great detail. And Cyprian's pretty famous treatise on the unity of the Catholic church. So Cyprian's 200s, I think very early 200s, and he's working through, uh, there's actually an issue of Rome where there's a Pope and an anti-Pope, if I remember right, Novation and someone else. Yeah. 
And so this is the church unity argument that's made. So it's really poignant because he's talking about the Roman uh, pontiff. I might uh, go on. Sorry. He, well, I was going to say, because that quote that he gives, he, I can't re- recall when I was reading this, I thought, oh, did we read this in Calvin already? He's quoted this before, hasn't he? In he's quoted this treatise because he's for sure quoted Cyprian as saying, you cannot have God as father unless you have church as mother. Yeah. But I don't know if he quoted these exact words. It could just be that it's rumbling because I, you know, it's such a famous quote about the uh, the rays of the sun and the one light right. sort of thing um, that I, I know. I mean, obviously, I've read it before, but uh, I just I thought, oh, Calvin already quote this at one point. Well, I, I do think it's fascinating to quote because it's a big deal document and it, it really uh, is in agreement with Calvin's position. In particular, Cyprian says the episcopate is one, a whole of which a part is held by each bishop. So then again, you have the multiplicity of bishops that accord unity rather than the single bishop of Rome. And the church is one which is spread abroad far and wide into a multitude by an increase of fruitfulness. As there are many rays of the sun, but one light and many branches since from one spring flow many streams, although Uh, you skipped all you skipped a line, many branches of a tree. Oh, but one strong trunk grounded in its tenacious root. And since from one spring flow many streams, although a goodly number seem outpoured from their bounty and superabundance, Still at the source, unity abides undivided. So also the church bathed in the light of the Lord extends its rays over the whole earth. Yet there is one light diffused everywhere. Nor is the unity of the body severed. It spreads its branches throughout the whole earth. It pours forth its overflowing streams. Yet there is one head and one source, etc. Again, the bride of Christ cannot be an adulteress. She knows one house. With chaste modesty, she guards the sanctity of one marriage bed. And then he he kind of explains the view there. I think it's interesting the, the kind of, um, sources Kelvin uses against the view that there's one Roman pontiff under which there is church unity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the basic claim is, okay, like medieval Catholic church is saying that we have, that there's this particular unity under the Roman pontiff and uh, he is the true vicar of Christ. And Calvin's like, no, 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 there is, he's not the vicar of Christ. Christ is the head. All other humans are part of the body, including the Bishop of Rome. And so the real unity comes just like in this, this uh, quote from, from Cyprian, the real unity, the source of the unity, the sun, right, as it were, is Jesus, the sun. And then we're all these various rays of light coming forth from it. But it's all, though they're diverse, it's all a fundamental unity, which is actually located in the head, who is, who is Christ, mm, um, mm-hmm. which is really, really great. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Let's let's flip back. What do you think about uh, under 1104, number three, that very kind of like classic debate that you're going to have over Matthew 16, 18 and uh, Peter and the rock and, and all that sort of stuff? Because uh, Calvin, I think, takes like a it's the view that I would effectively hold in terms of, OK, what, what is what is Jesus saying when he's speaking to Peter and addressing him? And then uh, how is that? how does that impact the other apostles, right? Is Peter this particular rock uh, that him and him alone, he and he alone will be the, the, the unifying source of all subsequent uh, manifestations of the church? Or, you know, is this for all? Is the binding and loosing for all? And Peter's just here representative of the whole group. And um, how have you understood that passage? Yeah, I haven't thought about this freshly, um, like super freshly, but I find it interesting that some people will say, well, like, um, 
this rock is like some geographic feature in the background or something and there's they're, they're kind of trying to move away from what the text says yeah or some people will say you know you made this confession and then jesus is then pointing that back confession. to himself as the rock or the confession is the rock calvin's just like no peter's just basically a leader amongst his equals he's representative here because he's had this right. conversation and then as you flip over to matthew 18 and in john 20 which he does at the top of 1106 he says, but this, this, this is, is for all the apostles, right? And then he goes on to an extended argument about why that has to be the case. Yes, we pay honor to right. Peter, but he's not, he's not, this, he's not what the, the late medieval church has made him to be. Well, see, I, I think Calvin has pretty common sense interpretation. It's, it's pretty obvious that it's Peter, I think. <laughs> I just yeah, feel like it has to be. Uh, it's pretty, I mean, maybe you could say, but a lot of the reasons why you wouldn't say is Peter is primarily anti-Roman church rhetoric. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah. well, if you're going to interpret scripture just to like own the libs, in this case, own the Romans, right. it's just like, right. it's a own bit the silly. Yeah. The, the real question I have, okay, so what if it's Peter? Like, do you think the inference from that is obviously there's one pontiff over the entire yeah. world in this kind of structured Roman church setting? I mean, like that's, that's like from that's like jumping from a to z you yeah. know what i mean like there's a lot of mis, uh, middle premises that are not there which is calvin's going to be his basic point then throughout the rest of that whole section is like yeah so it's peter good but do you get like an ongoing papacy out of that text no right and, you, and then he's going to say and you don't get it from church history either so it's no. not like you not like not like you can make this appeal and say well maybe that's not exactly the nitty-gritty of the text but that's then how it gets worked out through tradition calvin's like no it's not right. Yeah, and he cites Jerome to that effect and all those kinds of things where, no, it, yeah, so I, I think Kelvin's right on this probably. Um, I, it's not that I've necessarily dived in this passage, but it just seems to be, why not take the common sense interpretation that yeah. most people take? Uh, I just, I don't think it requires that theological conclusion that the uh, Roman pontiff is a vicar of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so I think Calvin's already done a good job of that from Hebrews in the Old Testament to show that Christ is, in fact, the great high priest. Yeah. And uh, we are, in essence, under shepherds. Um, maybe one last thing we can talk about, because I think it is maybe the more controversial aspect of some of the reformed uh, polemics. And that's namely, uh, is the Pope the Antichrist? <laughs> that's a good one. So um, there's different ways you can do this. So uh, sometimes Luther uses it basically as an insult. Calvin says... Well, I, I do think the Pope is the Antichrist, but don't misunderstand me. I mean this in the most rational way possible. I don't mean this as an insult at all. Yeah. Let me explain why. And he's like, look at the Second Thessalonians, Daniel, starts studying the Bible and he says, my conclusion is based on the characteristics of what the Bible calls the Antichrist, that the Pope's a good candidate for it. Yeah. And it kind of like, I read that and I was like, huh. It's almost like he's saying, like, it's like, if you call someone stupid and they're like, don't be mean. It's like, no, 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 no. I, Let's look at all the characteristics of what a stupid person is, and you meet that criteria. I'm right, trying to be right. rational here. I'm not trying to insult you. It's <laughs> I'm not just, trying to insult on. you. You're just a it, little. Well, it's sort of like the use of the fool in a way. Okay, that's a better one, yeah. right? Like Psalm 14, the fool in his, says in his heart, "There's no God." I'm not. Yeah. I'm not insulting you. I'm. I'm pointing out that like you have actually have a moral problem, a heart problem here. That's right. you might be very intelligent, but you're a fool because you deny the existence of God. It's kind of the same. It, that's more. That's better. And one of the problems is in English, we have certain words that have become insults, like "you're a fool," right? We just mean yeah. that as "I hate you" or "you're a, like I want to feel better than you." Yeah. But a lot of times the scriptural language is describing something with, with words that are true that we've taken as pejoratives. And then it kind of, it mixes up the categories, right? 
Yeah. So it's almost like we're using swear words when we call someone a fool, but what you actually mean is, uh, you could say, um, someone who has a, what I'm saying is you're, you're, you're morally accountable for your knowledge yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. you have a morally, morally bad way of viewing things. That's what you mean by that word, but yeah. people hear it as, oh, you're insulting me. And you think about it. It's like, think about the, the situation that the early, the magisterial Protestants, magisterial reformers are finding themselves in, right? Like why they have, the vast majority of them have come out of the late medieval church is because there's so much corruption. There's so much abuse of power. Calvin's going to say they're effectively like, how can we say that this guy has anything to do with any kind of godliness when he's actually persecuting the gospel, <laughs> right? The vicar yeah. of Christ is now persecuting Christ's gospel. So like, yeah, you, you sort of fit the bill with what the Bible says about the Antichrist here, you know? And I think one thing to remember, too, is we're, we're not talking like the current pope today is a thousand times different than like Leo, uh, was it Leo 10 or whatever, Leo uh, 10, Luther's yeah. time, yeah. where you have this kind of uh, huge solidarity, huge money, selling indulgences in ways that even, the, the, remember, the Roman church people didn't like the indulgence system. Like a lot of them were complaining about it. It wasn't just the reformers, right? That's yeah. who became the reformers, right? Yeah. There are all these Roman priests who are like, dude, you can't do this. I mean, even the Roman church uh, cantons in Switzerland booted the guys out. Like they agreed with that. So yeah. what's going on here is, is a, is a huge abuse of power uh, to the, to the point that it's just complete corruption and everybody knows it. There's just no mechanism to fix it. Yeah. And so the reformers are really just Roman church priests who are like mostly or, or monks or whatever, who are like, you know what, we're Roman church people, but we need to reform ourselves. And then they yeah. become this sort of distinct entity that we eventually know is like the Anglican church and the, you know, so on. Yeah. I mean, so, Peter Martyr of Vermeule is the, is a yeah. great example of that. I mean, he had lots of status within the papacy in Italy. Right. So, I mean, he's right in the thick of it, uh, you know, Florence, all these sorts of places, and uh and and then he, he's a guy from the inside who's looking around and saying this is not right right and something needs to be done what i find amazing to to bring out a, a you know you mentioned a modern pope but like the, the the situation hasn't really changed in some senses they don't have the power that they once had over yeah. like a holy roman empire or something like that that they did in the early renaissance but um i'm reading a book right now it's called in the Va in in the closet with the vatican or in the closet of the vatican Okay. <laughs> Interesting title. You got it. You got to read it. It's like a mat. It's a very thick book. It's a French author. He's a French journalist. I don't remember his name. Um, and he's showing how he, his basic argument in the book is the papacy, the Vatican is one massive gay club. And he's not anti-gay at all. The author, he's basically saying, look at the hypocrisy. And he interviews high ranking cardinals, archbishops, you know, he goes all over the world. He's like, he's got all these people that are speaking on conditions of anonymity to him that are right there in the thick of it. He's talking to like the lovers of like gay lovers of like of, of various high ranking officials. I mean, he's getting it all. I mean, the, the, the research right. is shocking. It's been translated. In I don't know how many languages now. And you're like, and then when you, then you go to the, uh, another issue of like the abuse of kids that's going on in the church, you know, by priests and just moving people around. I mean, it's one of the big reasons why Benedict is in retirement right now. Yeah. And it's like, oh, guess what? All that corruption that we saw in the late Middle Ages, it's still there. It's yeah. still, and there's still no mechanism to deal with it. There isn't right. one. And the Pope Francis, his, his hands are tied. The, the book argues that the, the, the guys that are the most gay when it comes to the leadership in the church are the ones who are most anti-gay 
when it comes to like their public action, right? The most homophobic people are the most gay people within the church. You're like, wow. Well, you, you, that's actually a kind of a common, apparently like common, like stereotype that, that might be true, even just in terms of politically people, uh, people who are whatever homophobic. Uh, the, the one, the one thing I would note on that is I've seen a little bit of this because I've read on the, uh, not the book, but I've seen stuff. Because one thing I want to be careful of when we're, when you're Protestants is like, because we also have tons of problems. 100%. Yeah. And uh, it, it's very easy to be like, well, we'll look at them and then kind of forget that judgment starts in the household of God. Yeah. And so I do think we have our own problems. And yeah. part of it is because we sometimes we don't have mechanisms because we're too diverse. Like you have independent church here with, with tons of abuse, another yeah. independent church here with tons of abuse. And because there's no no sort of authority structure, there's also no mechanism. So if the Roman church has too much too much authority structure, maybe we have too little and there has to be some middle ground. So Absolutely. Anyway, we should all become Anglicans is really what I'm Anglicans trying to get presbyterians or something or, or right? something like that yeah and uh um so uh, yeah but it is interesting that yeah these abuses are different now the one thing i would say about the antichrist question though is kelvin is drawing together a criteria that makes sense in the 16th century mm-hmm. so while I, I my own view is that there are many antichrists and they're here right. now as john says that i don't think we need to locate it as the pope anymore i mean it could be i'm not saying it's not the case it could be a, it could be a christian minister on the road but i think there are many antichrists and they have a particular description set out in scripture. And we don't necessarily have to say, oh, it's the guy in Rome anymore. It could actually be, uh, you know, the guy in Ottawa or whatever, right? Like it could be anything. Depends if he gets voted out in a couple yeah. of weeks. <laughs> no, I'm, my point though is like, I think sometimes because we're in this reformed world, we yeah. get locked. We don't, we don't adapt to the 21st century. And we're, it's like, well, if you think the Antichrist is somewhere over the ocean, then you're going to like miss that the Antichrist is here and present now. As first John says, there are many antichrists. It's funny because as Baptists, uh, the second London confession of faith actually has it in the confession that the Pope is the antichrist. Really? Yeah. yeah, (laughs) I mean, maybe I do that. I forgot, but it's, it's one of the few, I think, I don't think, I don't have to go grab and take a look at the Westminster confession. I don't think the Westminster says that. Since I'm a Baptist, I can't subscribe to the 1689 because it's (laughs) unbaptist of me to subscribe to a confession like that. There you go. Um, I, I wouldn't be a true Baptist if I did, because all Baptists subscribe to the 1689 are not Baptists. That's right. All right. Well, that was a very good. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll that, see you later, we'll, Ian. Have a good we'll, day. <laughs> we'll say that for another episode. Uh, but, gonna, sorry, but you can but think think about think about Luther's position too for a second, right? Like you read the work of Heiko Obermann, right? God, uh, Luther, man between God and the devil. Like Luther is literally in his mind, he is literally living in the end times. Well, and not just right? that, you got to remember there's the, the, the Turks are at the door about to yep. bring the apocalypse because they are the army from the East and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Probably that idea. Yeah. It's totally all that's wrapped up into the it. peasants like, war that like one of the million, I think it was millions of, was it millions of peasants died? I can't remember the, the number. It's huge anyways. Yeah. Peasants war was bad. Like you got all this stuff going on. This weird apocalypticisms going on with the various Anabaptist groups. You've got, the papacy who's breathing down their neck, the Holy Roman empire. You got the Turks that are coming in, you know, storming the gates of Vienna, all that stuff. So Luther's like, and we're going to be in heaven soon because Jesus is about to return. Right. (laughs) And, and so he's really like, that guy is the antichrist because after this end of history and we're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Right. So you can see where the impulse will come uh, at that period that's very eschatologically driven that now we've got the benefit of time. Like, Oh, Jesus hasn't returned yet. Unless, unless we're Jehovah's witnesses, we think it was 1914, but Mm. you know, um, yeah. So it's kind of muted that, that accusation, I think a little bit more. Yeah. And I I just, 
I, one of the things is I think when we get locked into um, 16th century debates, we forget how different the world is today. Because I think tradition and scripture have a, a function. Scripture is that the ongoing repository of the inspired inerrant word of God, where tradition is a good guide and it shows us how the Holy Spirit has guided the church. But it, it's a good guide, right? I'm not, I'm not Roman Catholic in the, in the way that I view tradition. It's, it's a great and wonderful guide. Yeah. But if you get locked into it and you can't translate to 2021, that tradition, yeah. then the traditions become not useful anymore. Yeah, I think it's more than a guide. I think tradition, insofar as it actually ref ac accurately reflects scripture, is actually an authority too. Yeah. Um, right. So the creeds and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I take your point. What do you think about his like? He, he has a kind of a couple of arguments from silence uh, on one uh, on uh, uh, I guess what is that one 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 four, <laughs> uh, where he's, he's talking about it on the top there under section fourteen on the sojourn of Peter in Rome, where he gets into this whole question of like. Was Peter actually in Rome? Okay, we know he was at the end. How long was he there for? Well, when Paul's writing the letter to the Romans, there's no reference to a Peter. So we know he's not there when Paul, when Paul goes. Uh, and even Luke, when he's talking about Paul being in prison at the end of Acts, there's no mention of Peter. And quite frankly, he says, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that everybody has forsaken him. And, uh, and that would then include, if Peter had been in Rome at the time, that would include Peter. So, but Peter's obviously not going to forsake Paul. So Peter's not there. Um, and, uh, and he says, you know, this, in spite of what Eusebius of Caesarea, the great early church historian has to say, because says, Eusebius says that Peter had been there for 25 years. And Calvin's like, that's not possible. Especially if Peter actually was in Antioch for a while before he went to Rome. So, that has to be accounted for. He says, if, if Peter's there, he's only there for a few years. So there's no indication that he's come in and established some sort of like papal see that's going to then kick off for the rec, you know, next however many millennia afterwards. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple other interesting factors. I mean, you have um, writings from a bishop and a prophet from Rome in the 90s. So first Clement and then yep. the, um, uh, the Hermes. Yeah, Shepherd Hermes. Um, so... The, if, if, I remember, if I remember it, I don't think they bring up Peter. No, no, it's Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, yeah. Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, why am I drawing a blank on this? Shepherd yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so um, I, in my mind, those would be kind of slammed on things. But, but on the other hand, one thing that I'm learning is, is you read, like you have, so we read the New Testament from the 21st century and billions of Christians but, but, you know, there's about 500 or so disciples and they were spread abroad across the world. There were the seven deacons that were set apart. There's even some apostles we barely know about. Um, like, yeah. Was it Matthias? Who's the, the one that gets voted in? I can't remember an next yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I have no idea who that is. And maybe people didn't like, obviously at some in Jerusalem, they were a big deal because you know, from, from Paul, but like maybe people didn't quite think of it that way in like 1650. They weren't like, Oh, this is the most special apostle ever versus these are just people who are talking about Christ yeah. and proclaiming it. And then of course, later on, you, you do retroject that kind of authority and that significance. But like if you're in Rome and a, a Jewish person comes on a boat there and gathers together 20, 30, 40 people and plants a church, you may just think that's an interesting thing that happens. <laughs> but then 50 years later, you're like, Whoa, this was a huge event, you know? Right. Right. And so it's yeah. possible that even though Peter was in Rome and was significant, that he wasn't understood to be that early on. And then it just kind of eventually, you know, like in the early 100s, you think, oh, this is a big deal yeah. in, in terms of your memory. So I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I, just, I don't know. I have no. I have no reason to say that Peter Dinko. I I tend to be pretty trusting of early Christian sources. The earlier they are, yeah. And I I I think Christian memory is um well he, is he very pits, useful. He even pits uh, Gregory uh, against Eusebius. Uh, so Gregory so says. What page that, is this on? This is on one 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 four. So he says Gregory figures that he was there for seven years. Eusebius twenty five. And so basically Calvin's trying to like defend the more uh, Gregory related approach. Um, and uh, what, what I like about what I liked about that section uh, was that he's, he's kind of really carefully reading scripture and, and then using, you know, reason and he's thinking, okay, so yeah, it might be an argument from silence, but it's a pretty loud silence when you think about it. Like why isn't Peter being addressed right. directly by Paul? Like if Paul's going to Rome and Peter's there, you think he would say, Hey, Shout out to my boy Peter. You know, it's like, it ain't there. <laughs> Shout out to that pillar. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because the other thing is, an argument from silence is different when there's no positive argument for the other side. Yes. Like, in other words, that's also a kind of argument from silence because there's there's no early source that I that I can remember offhand. Anyways, it's like, oh yeah, Peter was there, and yeah. my name is well, Clement, and I know this. So think about you mentioned a couple of the apostolic fathers. Think of Ignatius, right? So Ignatius of Antioch, uh, very early. Um, he writes, he's, he's, he's writing letter. Yeah, he's on his way to Rome. He's writing letters to all these various churches that he knows as he's going by like trolleys, magnesium, whatever, uh, Ephesus. And he's every single letter, except for the one to Polycarp, obviously, because he's just talking to Polycarp, but every other one, he says, greet the Bishop. When he's going to Rome, he never gives a greeting to the Bishop. And the purpose of his letter to the Roman church is he's telling them, listen, I'm coming to Rome. I, I don't know you personally, as far as I'm aware, uh, but I'm about to be executed in Rome. I'm going to be martyred. Do not get me off. You guys, I know some of you have political power and you could get me off the hook. You can't do that. I need to be martyred. You would think, right, if there had been a bishop in Rome, he would have directly addressed the bishop and said to him, do not let your people get me off the hook. Right. So there's no greeting to the bishop, nor is there any directive given by Ignatius to the bishop in Rome that that would say, just make sure that I'm going to get martyred because this is what has to happen. So, again, it's an argument from silence. But why would it be that that he doesn't address a bishop? Well, the other note wasn't one. You have sources in the 100s like Justin Martyr or um, Irenaeus's letter to, um, I think, Victor. And what's pretty clear is that Rome has a council of presbyters that are sourced in a number of house churches still. Yeah. And you actually see that at the end of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, because it, it appears like he's writing to various house churches. And so I, I, this is kind of just an idea, but like you have to wonder if one of the reasons why the later uh, authority of the bishop was so emphasized in Rome is because of the earlier diversity and the inability to herd cats there. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Whereas in Turkey, there was a pretty clear already all while the apostles were alive there were bishops there that were central figures now they might be much different than we think they don't have the pointy hats and all that kind of stuff they're more like what we call a senior pastor but the the point is that in certain places you already had this kind of authority and then i think in alexandria too there seems to be a a, at least a relatively strong tradition of bishop but in rome not really until the 200s or late 100s at least yeah um well i mean even even the uh the apostolic tradition of uh of the Hippolation church, yeah, which is, it's written in the early 200s, but it actually tracks traditions in the 100s. It, it's demonstrable that they're actually one portion of the Roman church. They're not the, there's not a single urban church like there would be in Turkey. Yeah. 
So anyway, it's all fascinating. Oh, hey, I, I think we should that. stop so you can go to uh, teach your class or whatever your next thing is. Eh. Um, I'm pretty sure we're just doing the next two chapters after this. I can't remember offhand. Okay. Um, and we'll see if we learn more about how the Pope is the Antichrist. Let's see. Wait. So what is so chapter eight? Let me see where it is here. Okay. So the power of the church with respect to articles of faith, how in the papacy with unbridled license, the church has been led to corrupt all purity of doctrine. Should be fun. <laughs> Should be fun. I mean, <laughs> he's definitely <laughs> in a debate that we are less familiar with, or yeah. maybe don't need to have as much today, but anyways, yeah. it'll be fun. History is good. We're getting into theology of the past. So, okay. Bye friend. Cheers.